0: Hi, everyone. David here. Thank you so much for listening to What Matters. We hope you enjoy the show. Before we begin, if you and maybe some of your colleagues would like premium access to the What Matters podcast and want to read or listen to the essential in-depth journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy, make sure to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for less than one euro a day, which will give you access to our website and app. Just follow the link in the show notes or go to com/subscribe to find out more. Hello and welcome to episode 22 of What Matters, the podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy. My name is David Weston and joining me once again are Michaela Hull from Agora Energy Vendor and Jan Rosenau of the Regulatory Assistance Project. Hi team, are you both well?
1: Hello, Um, yes. I'm actually going to COP, I found out yesterday. I was deeply conflicted about it because it's a long journey and a lot of emissions but there's now at least four events where I'm going to be able to contribute so i'm i'm i decided in the end to go um and uh it's it's exciting to go
0: yeah that'd be really exciting um hope that's a, a really valuable couple of days michaela everything well with you are you going to cop
2: no i'm not going to cop but i'm exceptionally in the co-working space for this recording so <laughs> less emissions involved in that <laughs> <laughs> absolutely
0: Today, we're talking about heating, and heating is becoming an increasingly pivotal issue in the energy transition, especially now as we enter a winter where many of us are thinking twice about when to put the heating on in our homes. But is heating and also cooling getting enough attention at a policy and regulatory level? Joining us this week is Aurélie Beauvais, Managing Director at Trade Association Euroheat and Power. Aurélie, thank you so much for joining us on What Matters.
3: Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure.
0: To kick off, then um, it'd be really interesting to hear your sort of initial thoughts on how you think heating and cooling fit into the EU's policy discourse, uh, and do you think it's changed uh, as a result of the ongoing energy crisis at all?
3: Hmm. That's a that's a question that seems easy, but is not actually. Um, it's a bit paradoxical, I find, um, especially in the current crisis. You would say, I would say, heating is everywhere. Yes, everyone is talking about heating. I end up. Uh, dining in restaurants where my neighbors are talking about heat pumps and it never happened in my life in the past. So yes, there, there is an unprecedented momentum and awareness on actually the impact that heating has in our daily life and consumption. And it is perceived that at political level, uh, some say very strongly and we say it, the, the current crisis is a heating crisis. But When you look about the answers that are provided to the crisis and the initiatives that we have seen uh, recently, it seems not, (laughs) because it's like if heating is perceived as a byproduct of electricity or hydrogen, but doesn't exist by itself. Uh, And here, I think it's a a very strong paradox we're witnessing at European level, how much we talk about it, but how how, how little we do about it in a way.
1: There's a great cartoon which I um, use regularly in presentations, which shows uh, you know, all the different uh, clean energy solutions, and um, and sort of heating is the elephant in, in in the cartoon in the middle of the room, and then there's all the other pieces around it, electric vehicles, and renewables, and nuclear, and CCS, and and nobody talks about heating. Um, and, and I think I think um, that is changing indeed already. Uh, one thing that might be uh, useful for our listeners is if you could explain what district heating actually is and why it can play a role uh, in the transition. I think not everybody may know what district heating is, uh, especially our listeners from further afield because district heating isn't so common, for example, in the U.S.,
3: Yes absolutely that, that's my favorite part uh, explaining what district heating and cooling is. Um, well it, it's pretty simple, but you're right uh, not so well known uh, when you when you go further south in Europe because it's actually pretty developed in in northern countries, but it, it's basically uh, heat networks um, a very efficient way. to to provide and to supply either heating and cooling through insulated pipes uh, with hot water in it. And so you you generate this heating um, with a diversity of sources, which can be either solar thermal, geothermal. Uh, It can be heat pumps using ambient heat or, you know, heat or cool from from water. It can be also cogeneration unit. So we're basically talking about a network of hot water in insulated pipes, which are very well developed in, in northern countries. And if you look at uh, a lot of thought leaders in the energy sector, but also institutions like the European Commission or the IEA, it, o- it is also broadly acknowledged as the most or one of the most sustainable solutions to provide sustainable heating in highly dense um, populated areas like, like cities.
2: Uh, If I may follow up on that, yes. um, Yes. if I remember correctly from the scenarios, so as you said, it's mostly it will be playing a role in densely populated areas. But if I remember from the scenarios, even uh, it clearly says also in places where we don't have the network yet, we will have to develop such network in the future. Is that correct? Like, for example, in places like Spain?
3: Yes, absolutely. I mean, In general, uh, I don't know if it's the time where uh, I should explain how much benefits we can get from that. But when we talk, and we are talking a lot about it today, about reducing the use of fossil fuels, we're talking about heating, we're talking about cooling, and we're talking about all European countries. We will not repeat half of the energy demand, 42% of uh, gas consumption in there. And in general... Um those heating systems, of course, are more, more mostly used in the nor- north, but you will get also much higher needs for cooling in the south and for heating everywhere. You have existing networks which need to be modernized, which need to be expanded, but of course, you have a huge potential for new networks and If you look at Germany, for example, they plan to have the capacity uh, doubling. Um uh, by 2050 or compared to what they have today. They, they forecast 26% of their heat to be supplied by district heating and cooling compared to 11% today. So yes, you have a huge growth potential in most of the countries. Um, if you look at the heat roadmap, they forecast district heating could uh, supply 50% of the European heat demand, and today we're at 11%. So it does imply a lot of new networks everywhere, Yes.
2: So it's even more shocking how absent is when it comes to discussions, say about money at EU level. I just saw your tweet uh, of on when when there there was this leak about the upcoming items of the Commission's work program, and you just said, "Hmm, but where's heating?" Yes, uh, and I would say it's the same when it comes to funding. I remember when they published the um, this safe winter strategy, no, there's repower strategy, Um, the investment needs for district heating were missing. They were not even mentioned. You had investment needs for everything, but for district heating, they were not even mentioned. Oh, absolutely. And I would say what you don't mention is just not present in the debate. I mean... Yeah. Why is that and what could be done about it? And also, I'd be curious, I guess it's not, an, it's not a cheap thing to do. The investment needs are probably also pretty big for those kind of grids, right? I mean, both to refurbish them because sometimes they're very mm-hmm. leaky, no? they need a lot of work, uh, or even to dig up and build new ones. I guess it's not, it's not so cheap, right?
3: Yes, of course. Then I don't think the energy transition is cheap, in any case, and and it's true that uh, we we tend to you know only talk now about the marginal cost of solar and wind, which is true today are uh, much more cheaper. But it doesn't mean you don't need to build a, an infrastructure behind that, and it doesn't have a cost, and actually it does. So yeah, I think it's 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 a bit the the policy environment is saturated today. Uh, And in Sibs, indeed, we only have enough space to talk about renewable electricity and hydrogen. I'm not bothered by the fact that we talk about renewable electricity because I am convinced we need much, much, much more of it. And and in this aspect, in a way, I feel the train has left the station. Uh, It's going right uh, and we have done the right things. But indeed, it's very appalling to see the focus that you would have on technologies like hydrogen, which are... Commonly, It's commonly uh, accepted that it will not be a driving source for heating, but we're talking about a heating crisis today, right now. So we're talking about solutions that can decarbonize heating in the next five years. And if you look at that, district heating and cooling... It is a thing. It's, it is a real thing. Um, Agora, they did a study where they saw that in the next five years, you would save 127 terawatt hour if you would to, if you, you would expand and modernize your network. And that's about eight to 10% of what we import from Russia only in five years, just if you look at, you know, expanding what you already have. So what would it be if we would have on top of that heat plannings, if we would kind of uh, provide, you know, mandatory connection to recovered heat sources that are available, these kind of things, the, the potential is enormous. And yes, it has a cost. In fact, Agora as well, sorry, but I, I just love what you produce and, and read a lot of your stuff. Uh, but you forecasted, I think, just keep going, you know. <laughs> I will. Really I will. And I'm happy that you focus on on uh, district heating and cooling uh, also because I think we also need independent uh, science based thinker to, to drive the de- to drive the debate. Um, but Agora estimated that if we were only to look at the repower EU, we would need 210 billion euros. Uh, for the modernization in general to invest in district heating and cooling systems. If you look at what we have in the repower EU for energy type of infrastructure it's 8.5 billion the budget that is allocated today so we're way 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 below uh, where we should be and indeed I can't help but be a little annoyed when I notice that uh, you get some funding dedicated to some kind of hydrogen bank which is maybe a good idea but will not solve the heating crisis in the next 5 years and you have nothing that looks into how we can concretely quickly roll out clean heating solution in the next 5 years. Um how to solve it we will keep raising our voice. Yeah.
1: Aurelie, oh, well, uh, let me just challenge you a bit um because of course uh yeah you know, there's, there's. I agree with you a lot of what you said on the potential for district heating but when you look at the current district heating uh, in Europe. Um, and I just took a quick look at uh, the recent statistics, how much is still coming from gas of that uh, district heating and how much from coal. Um, I think gas is still a very major, if not the most important energy carrier that's being used uh, for, for district heating. Uh, you know, how is how is the current crisis and also the, the, the now much more ambitious climate goals um, challenging the fundamentals of, of of district heating as we know it, especially in parts of Europe where you know, I'm thinking about old district heating networks, for example, in Central and Eastern Europe that run on mainly coal. Um, how is that going to challenge uh, the fundamentals of district heating? Going forward.
3: Yes. No, thank you for challenging me on that. That's also something we are very uh, aware of, the, the current uh, mix. Um, so, uh, indeed, we have about 30% of, of gas uh, in our mix today. Um, one one thing is that when we talk about the use of gas, we all agree that it will not be phased out in the next 10 years. Realistically, we know We will still be using gas, let's say, maybe in the next 20 years, but we will work to drastically reduce it. And here, when you use gas in a heat network rather than with an individual heating boiler, you save about 30% compared to a boiler when you are going through a heating network. So that means, yes, we still have a gas share, but if you have to use gas, you'd rather use it in a district heating and cooling system, and you will already significantly contribute to the energy independence. And the fact that we are more efficient also means, means we are less exposed to uh, the price volatility and the price crisis that we are observing because we still need less gas to produce the same amount of heating. Then, of course, we are impacted as any other sector by the rising prices and all types of goods are increasing. The the, the electricity price is increasing for our heat pumps. The gas prices are increasing. um, Maybe geosomal and solosomals, which are rather local, are the only ones that remain stable. Um, So we are impacted, yes, and... It's a nice transition also to the emergency measures that we see in terms of price, where also the heating and cooling sector is completely absent. And, and we don't uh, have specific considerations for our technologies, which are integrating a variety of sources when we talk about shielding measures or uh, caps. But yeah, it, it just shows how, less we, how little we are in the radar in a way.
1: Thank you. Um, I, just one follow-up question, if I may. Um, I've just been to a solar conference um, where there was a session on district heating um, that was in, in Kassel in Germany. Um, if you've ever been to Kassel, um, uh, it, it's not the most exciting destination to, to to visit, to be quite honest. But there was a really interesting session on district heating, and it was from the German District Heating Association. And they were explaining that the, the scenarios for decarbonization that were created before the gas price crisis, before you know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, now need to be redeveloped because they relied heavily on gas as a transition fuel—you know, gas replacing coal—and uh, then we replace gas eventually. But um, you know, the, the, the presentation very much made the point that we need to reassess that because of the high cost of gas and the huge pressure on Europe. To phase our gas. Um is, is is that something that you're looking at in in amongst your members? You know, what can replace uh gas, even if it's more efficient, as you explained, to use it in district heating. Um how can we replace that faster than you previously thought would be necessary?
3: Of course. And you know, like we, we are 100% aware of this and behind that. And I would even add, we do not only need to replace gas, we need to replace coal. And we need also to consider that an important source of our supply today, which is biomass, uh, will not be increasing so much in the future because we have higher uh, public opposition. So we are at a stage in the development of our uh, sector we, where we, we have, on the one hand, profound growth, so immense growth, profound transformation, and it reminds me simply of the electricity sector uh, 10 years ago. And here as well, you will see a bit of a um, uh, de poids de mesure, as we say in French. I don't know how to say that in English, but not a level playing field in treatment. Because I started in, in the electric sector 10 years ago. And when we had all those electrification targets, when we really started to develop renewables, the electricity mix was still pretty dirty. Uh, the only difference is that there was this vision that at some point electricity would be decarbonized. There was this vision that we needed more solar, wind, and other types of renewable, and that to get that, we needed to put in place a regulatory framework with dedicated financial instruments. So today, in the district heating and cooling sector, we have this vision, and we know how to replace the gas, the coal, and cap, in a way, the use that we have uh, for biomass. This is, for example, Geothermal energy, which across the countries we've looked at by 2050 will count between 8 to 15 percent of our future mix, depending on the resources. And actually, you have strong geothermal resources in uh, central eastern countries like Hungary. So that's positive. This is everything that relates to recovered waste heat and I just love this technology because the potential is huge here as well. It could cover about 10% of the heat demand. And when we look at our own district heating and cooling supply, maybe 25, uh, 25% in the future. And you have, of course, heat pumps, which are, I would only echo what our friend Thomas Novak says a lot, but they are indeed magical. And large-scale heat pumps um, enables you to produce with ambient heat or recovered heat from sewage water water. Uh, Many types of sources actually, um, renewable heat that can be integrated. Um, and we see that in countries with high share of electrification. Uh, or sorry, high shares of renewable electricity as well, like Germany, Denmark, but it could be Spain or it could be Portugal. Uh, the, the, the economic efficiency of that is growing a lot. Uh, of course, the current electricity price are a bit of a challenge, but in general, we have the technologies. What we miss is the framework. And that is why, indeed, you pointed it out, Michaela. I was very disappointed to see that in the current work package of the, the, the European Commission that is under development, we still do not have the proposal either to review or to develop a new heating and cooling strategy. If we consider that the strategy we have dates from 2016, which was not only before the crisis, but before we even set ourselves the ambition to become climate neutral. So we are missing our framework to go from the vision to... yeah. The, the actual transition pathway i
2: would add i would totally agree i mean there should be something like a heating and cooling strategy but i would even go beyond i think the situation is worse than what you said 10 years ago with electricity be, because of two things first of all for elect i mean for heating at the moment what we actually have we it's not that we lack a framework i think we actually have a framework that that gives the wrong incentives and works against. Absolutely, yes. So, I mean, you basically would have to screen across the board to find the bad incentives, giving one example uh, of what Jan's colleague uh, worked—I tweeted about last week, that the fact that you cannot account as a member state a heat pump for your heating target. So basically the only incentive you have is to do old school bioenergy, which is 80%. We have never addressed this we have never addressed this, that it's basically bio only and we never got to heat to zero. Like geothermal is nowhere.
3: Yes. And then
2: you have the gas package, which, you know, doesn't even look at the effects of what it would do for other investments, which are very, which have a high in, uh, upfront investment costs like geothermal. Like they come forward with a proposal saying, now we do uh, reduce tariffs for bi- biogas. Why? What? <laughs> how does this fit into the bigger picture has anyone assessed how what that means for for other so- sources of heat so i would say honestly it's not the lack of a framework it's the fact that the framework is is
3: giving wherever it can the wrong incentive i would say i, I would say we have both uh because we we, we do not have a framework when we talk about uh, risk mitigation instruments for new geothermal projects, risk mitigation instruments for for new infrastructures, because we're being asked to develop new infrastructures, uh, but maybe it will be for two customers. How can it be? You need to have a guaranteed minimal base of customers when you are to develop a whole new network. So in this area, how to mitigate risk how to incentivize the rollout of large scale heat pump or uh the the, the construction of new geothermal plants we, we really do not have what is needed also for the 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 waste heat recovery and you are right on the other hand I think it's connected to what I was saying earlier heating and cooling is just perceived as a byproduct so you electrify and and with it you will have heating and cooling but we're talking about a um a sector that is totally different. You are right. As it stands in the current Renewable Energy Directive uh, discussions, if we are not able to factor in the electricity uh, that that was used uh, with a heat pump to produce heat, for example, as renewable, I question a lot how it is going to drive the uptake of uh, large-scale heat pumps in the district heating systems. Because why would we do that if we cannot account it as a a target or a renewable benefit? It's it's indeed a a big issue in the long term.
1: Yeah, just, just to follow up on that, Oli, um, uh, actually something that we found in recent work um, was that the least efficient your heating system is under the Renewable Energy Directive, the more credits you get under the heating and cooling targets. So if you have a, an open wood fire uh, where 70% of your energy just escapes through the chimney, uh, you're actually getting the credit for the fuel that you burn. So it's the wood that you burn, not the energy that you actually practically use in the property, um, which is completely counterintuitive, especially with a resource like biomass, which is there are constraints around that. Um, But if you use a highly efficient system that gets close to 100% efficiency, uh, you, you get a penalty because you're using less fuel. Um, and 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 that clearly is, 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 is not tenable if you want to incentivize policymakers to support the transition to much more efficient heating systems, including district heating, uh, rather than just to burn more biomass, which is, I think, about 80% of the EU's renewable heating and cooling targets is about 80% is biomass, um, which, which to me seems... Uh, pretty shocking, given that um, you know, most people say it's got to be district heating electrification. That's where the bulk of the emission reduction will come from.
3: Yes, absolutely. It's it's absolutely upside down, and we absolutely need to change that uh, in the next three months. Also, we although we have little time. Maybe what we also need yeah. on top of your heating strategy, um, I think, is really a, a, a strategy
2: to prioritize gas resources like hydrogen and bio energy. For the debate, I, I think that's also urgently needed um, to correct. I think, and also to yes, to focus minds on you know, because uh, at the moment the discussion is like if if they play a role like gas today, which is not true, and that will then also create the space for the other things. Um, I'm super curious because I don't understand why on earth geothermal is not more of a thing. I, I don't understand why it never, why no one ever thought, let's pick this up because I, you would think, hey, that's also an opportunity for, for oil and gas industry to reuse their knowledge. And, you know, they know mining, they know these things, they are used to handling high risk projects. And I never understood, like, you know, I mean, you could bring the industry on board. Why is it not much more of a thing? Is it more of a thing elsewhere? Like, I don't know, do you know? Uh, the u s or something um yeah. be curious to hear because what you said previously, I forgot the figure, but you said like uh, the share that we expect for it to play in twenty fifty yeah I mean we are nowhere there, right I mean it's
3: yes, absolutely, we're very far away for for me, it's simply. Although we feel working in Brussels, we're always working in urgency and we always have emergencies at the next door, we we cannot do everything at the same time. So I think the focus has been simply very strongly on electricity and the uptake of renewable electricity. And it was great. It's, It's a real success story. So for me, which I was working in the electricity sector before, I have a lot of hope Really, because I see that with a proper framework, with a proper attention, you can actually achieve real things. So now is the time to look at renewable heat, simply. It's true that solar has been mostly perceived as solar PV. If you look at the solar strategy, it's solar PV mostly. But solar thermal has also a lot of advantages. And even in countries you wouldn't think of, like like Denmark, which has a lot of solar thermal because they have also uh, more land uh, available next to their uh, villages or smaller towns. Uh, And we even have uh, a member that with solar thermal can produce heat uh, at up to 160 degrees for uh, process heating in industry. So that's also a powerful energy. Geosomo is the same. It it is a project that is more risky. Why? Because you need to, um, first guess you have a resource, then you need to test the resource. And you may be in a situation when you make a drilling, you spend maybe one million, two million, and the project doesn't go through because the rock is not okay. Or, you know, I'm not a specialist, um, in Geosomo. That would be more for our colleagues from EJEC, but I have seen some projects where the risk factor was very high, and it's nothing compared to uh, what we have for uh, solar and wind, but it's also nothing compared from what you get because you get base load energy as well for heating once you've done that, and you get a local. Resource, which is then hedged from volatility uh, in terms of price, for example, and makes the area more resilient. So it's just different energies. It requires a different focus, uh, which we don't have today. And what you said about prioritization, I I just, I, I subscribe totally. And I think we, we are, we have a big problem now that we are, we seem to be betting everything on electricity. And I just wonder with everything in the short term, If we're going to add on top of that, all those million heat pumps, uh, honestly, when, when we look at the volumes of for the deployment of solar and wind, which are put now uh, at European level, they need to be much higher. Otherwise, I don't see how we will be able to provide the hydrogen at the volumes that are also forecasted by the, the commission may be a bit too high, but also the EVs and also the heat pumps and whatever we will come with it. I mean, uh, that's also a prioritization, which we need to do where it is most suitable to use this electricity today. And uh, certainly not for hydrogen in heating. Uh, that That's uh, for us quite, uh, quite clear.
1: Can I follow up on that, Oli? Because um I mean, you say it's quite clear from the district heating um, industry's viewpoint. I have seen people make the point that oh, we could use uh, hydrogen in CHP, yes, uh, and combined heat and power plants in in, in in district heating, and uh, and use quite a lot of it. Um, uh, is, is is this an industry position that's kind of shaping up to to kind of say actually you know hydrogen for for bulk heat? production in district heating is is, is not the way forward? Um,
3: It It is not a position in the sense that it should be driven by economic efficiency. We are not going to say this cannot or this can't, uh, but when talking about explicit policy incentives, that, that's something that is completely different and where we can actually make a bit of a choice. For hydrogen, you are right. Um, and here I would also distinguish when we say hydrogen in heating, it's not at all the same to say we're going to use hydrogen in boilers uh, than saying we may use hydrogen in some cases as a backup in cogeneration plants. Uh, that's far less hydrogen. And even if, and if you burn it, Again it's going to be a much more efficient use of it. So here as well, resource efficiency really has to be at the, the core of whatever we are going to develop in terms of energy policy, including for heating. Um, and indeed, in Germany, notably, you have a higher part, but we're not surprised. We know Germany likes hydrogen at the moment uh, as a backup, but we see we see also for um, the backup units for CHP in eastern countries, uh, also uh, biomethine uh, being considered as a suitable option In the long run, rather than hydrogen, for example.
0: Hi, everyone, David here again. Just a reminder that you and your colleagues can get premium access to the What Matters podcast and all of the in depth journalism from Foresight, Climate and Energy by subscribing. You can give us a try for 30 days for just 29 euros, where you can access our website and audio app. Go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes. Now, back to our conversation. Orly, I was wondering as well <clears throat> if you could um, discuss a little bit more about the uh, recovery of, of waste heat from industrial processes. And obviously, there's a lot of um, new data centers that are springing up around Europe uh, as you know, data is becoming the, the, the number one thing in the world. Um, can we use that heat as well into district heating and into other sort of uh, combined heat and power plants as well, and um, is there the facility in order to uh, for companies to benefit from this?
3: Yes, we can, and we should. Uh, <laughs> is the the simple answer? Um, that that is also something that is not known uh, at all, but it's actually a, a quite simple uh, concept. When, when you go behind your your fridge, for example, your, your fridge is a machine that is producing cooling, and this cooling, actually the process uh, produces heat. So behind your, your fridge, it's warm. Uh, if you compare it, for example, with other type of infrastructures like data centers, which have huge cooling needs, uh, well, data centers produce a lot of excess heat, um, and we see uh, a lot of uh, smart business models emerging, like in uh, Dublin, in Norway, in Finland, which have data centers installed. But data centers are popping up everywhere, especially also where you have cheaper electricity prices. Um, you have a, a project in Dublin where it's going to it's going to feed a, an entire district district and we're talking uh, thousands of households Uh, the latest project in Norway uh, also where I think the data center is going to supply 6,000 people with sustainable heat so we're talking significant uh, amounts of of sustainable heat here and in European level at European level today there is a progress in the red two you have some incentives to use waste heat, I think there has been a breakthrough in terms of recognizing that this source exists and, and is actually available now, which is also very, very useful in the context that we have. Um, what we need now is to work on the business case, meaning who builds the infrastructure, who covers the risk for building the infrastructure, uh, and also making sure that when developing those uh, network for heat recovery, we focus also on industries that are more likely to stay for, let's say, a period of five to ten years, because you you do want to build a network for something that is going to close in in three years. That's a problem today. We see that in the current energy crisis, a lot of high heat emitters, in a way like cement or glass, are closing. So that would mean we would not have excess heat. Um, but data centers, I think, for example, are a strong example of something that, that could in a way feature in the repower EU, harvest excess heat from data centers that we have close to urban areas, for example.
1: But could I uh, come in and ask you a, a heat pump question, Orly? Um Because uh, you mentioned heat pumps before and we didn't really um, uh, follow up on that. But um, my understanding is that there are already several large-scale heat pumps uh, in operation in places such as Denmark that uh, are connected to district heating networks, and their sole purpose is to provide heat uh, f- for those networks. Uh, and I've also read about uh, projects, for example, in Helsinki, where uh, I think it's the site of a former coal um, heat plant um, that that is used now for uh, the development of a very large heat pump that will feed into Helsinki's district heating network, what, what do you see the role for this, for large-scale <coughs> uh, heat pumps uh, could be for, for decarbonizing clean district heating and making it um, you know, a low-carbon uh, option?
3: Yes. Just to say that I, I love the example you took uh, with uh, the conversion of uh, an old coal plant because that's also something we see uh, happening in Spain, where former coal mines are actually converted into some kind of shallow geothermal uh, district, uh, you know, geothermal plants. That then, with a heat pump, you upgrade the heat and, and you actually create a new district heating system. So we see that happening in Spain notably as well. Um, large-scale heat pump forests are, as I said, it's one of the three pillars of decarbonization, and it's it's quite instrumental because with large-scale heat pump, you can recover the waste heat because the example I gave before of the data center, the waste heat will be maybe around 30 degrees. So you will need a heat pump to actually um, upgrade this heat to more a 60 degree temperature, which will then uh, be, be uh, feeding into a building. You also need the heat pump for geothermal in some cases. Uh, so... In a way, by incentivizing sustainable district heating and cooling, you incentivize the rollout of large-scale heat pump and vice versa. So, it's a very nice uh, synergy we have there. In terms of the share, when I, so I mentioned before uh, Germany and Denmark. In Denmark, we we had the 2050 scenario of the association and they forecast 45% of uh, the future heat supply in district heating and cooling systems to be provided by heat pumps in Denmark. That's very, very big. In Germany, it's 33%. We don't have uh, the, the those type of scenario for southern countries, but I would really expect as well um, a, a very strong share if we were to build those networks, in particular also for cooling, which is maybe a, another discussion. But yeah, the, the potential is significant. What we will need Really also is um, competitive electricity prices. It's a bit for everything, you know. We still need electricity. So the business case will depend a lot as well on how uh, the price of electricity will evolve. And for that, we're a bit in standby like everyone, also probably the electrolyzer industry. Um, and uh, yeah, probably also making sure that we will have an appropriate industrial strategy to get uh, local cost-efficient supply of those large-scale heat pumps. I think in this regard, the focus has been mostly on residential so far. And that's also why we insist so much on the fact to keep both residential and large-scale because on the large-scale aspect, we may need even more industrial efforts to bring the cost down. But uh, the benefits are also very, very interesting because, yeah, it's also more efficient. You heat more with a large-scale heat pump.
1: It's an interesting point you're making about the cost of electricity. I mean, one of the... Issues we identified in, in in research earlier this year was that often electricity um, carries a lot of the uh, the levies and taxes um, you know that are that are used to pay for the transition, whereas uh, gas, oil, coal, biomass, um, very little, and 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 that makes electricity more expensive in relative terms, and it's a disincentive uh, to, to using it. And, it's interesting to hear you, your kind of perspective on this, that it's also a barrier in, in district heating. So thank you for that.
3: Yes, that, that's indeed a, a, a long debate uh, that, that we've had. And, and it's not only for uh, incentives uh, that are indeed on electricity price. If you look at CO2 as well, I know it's a very complex debate, but the simple fact that in, you know, individual heating systems are not covered by the ETS, whereas uh, more central uh, produ- production like a cogeneration for district heating, but also the production of electricity is covered by the ETS. There is also a lack of a level playing field there. I don't have an answer to this. I always thought it's not a position, but that in general, moving that to general taxation and removing it uh, from, from the price of, of energy in general maybe would be a, a better way. So that is equally distributed uh, across society, but probably there's a reason why it, it wasn't done. Or the
0: was just wondering... We've spoken a lot about district heating and cooling and combined heat and power. There's different forms of heating that we can do and how to decarbonize it. Is it not simply a case of, I know we've spoken about, and I know I'm going to oversimplify it here. If we can just give everyone a heat pump, you know, incentivize them, make them really cheap. Isn't that the most direct, simplest route to decarbonizing heating?
3: I think I will come back to my favorite word of the day, (laughs) which is resource efficiency. And, um, one, one big issue that we see, that I see at least today, it's like if it's a fight between technologies. And we're talking about decarbonization, uh, the decarbonization of our uh, society and economy. We're talking about saving the planet. I know it sounds super cheeky, but that's actually what we're talking about. And the consequences are even more important. And it's, in the debate, it has become who wins. But the, the winner should be the consumer and the winner should be us all together because we have managed to make the most of our resources to have the, 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 the less carbon footprint possible. So I would tell you, if in a situation you have no locally available renewable heat, you have no waste heat available and you have renewable electricity, Then go for a heat pump for sure. But in some cases where you have a city which has, um, available excess heat, why not use it? You know, because then we enter into a situation where we would increase our electricity demand because we would electrify uses which could have been satisfied otherwise by other sustainable sources. So it's completely, it's inefficient from this perspective. You still have those things you don't use. And you increase the demand. And then for residential heat pumps, we know they are challenged, notably in densely populated areas to develop those heat pumps, which cannot be as easily, for example, developed in multi apartment buildings, uh, which cannot be uh, always put, you know, in single homes in uh, suburbs. That's fine. But cities, it's completely different infrastructure. And you have a little, a little NIMBY effect, but that is fine because then you have large scale heat pumps. And they can be just a bit more outside of the area. You still have your use of renewable electricity, if you think. But then it's easier to implement. And with a large-scale heat pump, you have this heat network, which means that not everything has to rely on electricity. You can then use this heat network to integrate the other sources that you have, whether it's the waste heat from the data center. But it can be something also stupid. There is an example in Ghent, which I love, where you have a dense hole and, and they, they take the excess heat from the dense hole, the ambient heat, to heat the library nearby. I mean, those are the type of super small, super smart systems we're talking about, which I, I don't see why we, we shouldn't use that. It should be complementary. So let's build a system which enables all those sources to communicate and to play their part.
0: And that also then feeds into the idea about um, system flexibility and what to do in times of um, high renewables penetration, uh, excess wind generation, those sort of things. Can the heating sector play a bigger role in, in that side of grid balance and grid flexibility?
3: Yes, absolutely. And that's also another aspect uh, where where I think we could play a significant role. So. As I said, for example, the heat pumps, we already see that in in countries like Germany and Denmark, which may have in some cases negative electricity prices, that's also where you have uh, um, uh, an interesting economic efficiency for heat pumps because you you activate those heat pumps uh, when you have too much electricity and you avoid curtailment. So actually, the renewable producer gets more money because its electricity is being used rather than curtailed and you balance uh, the grid by compensating and creating a demand where it's needed. The other aspect also is thermal storage and here as well Uh, Why are we not talking more about thermal storage? Uh, Should we focus everything on battery storage? No, because it's also something that will have an impact. uh, Like any other clean technology, I'm not trying to oppose things here, but let's just be realistic. So thermal storage is a very interesting complement. You have already some cases in in Canada, I think, which also is a bit counterintuitive, where they have developed a, a, um, a thermal storage with a solar thermal, and it actually provides seasonal storage. It's very hard to 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 explain, but actually, with a hole in the ground and very complex uh, thermodynamics, uh, you know, uh, science, you are able to maintain heat uh, over uh, between summer and winter. So, summer storage answers one of the questions that we have not been able to solve today, which is seasonality. Um not only, okay, the, the six months one, but also weekly, for example. So we should invest more in that. It's actually very efficient. I think the, the studies show that it's maybe 10 times more efficient, I think, than battery storage or even more. I, I shall need to find this figure. Uh, but in general, here as well, diversity is the key storage that relies on electricity, storage that relies on heat working together.
1: Couldn't agree more, really. Um, I think it's 100 times cheaper. That's the figure I have in 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 mind. It was based on an academic paper that thermal storage is about 100 times cheaper ah, bah, than battery storage. Of course, they serve very different purposes. <laughs> I mean, battery storage has its place. You're right. Um, um, but thermal storage is a very different application. But the more we can do on the thermal side, the, the less we have to spend on batteries. Uh, there actually is a project that we found in, in Munich a um, bit closer to home uh, which uses solar thermal on rooftops and then in the summer they harvest the energy from solar thermal and put it into a massive um, it's basically a big water tank buried under the ground it's it's, a, it's it looks like a hill um, from the outside but there's a big water tank in the middle and they use the solar thermal to heat up the water in the summer then we have a little uh, district heating network that um uses that thermal energy in the winter but the heat is upgraded with a large heat pump uh to a higher temperature uh so you, you can you can use it in the district heating network for, for the buildings that also host the solar thermal on their rooftops so it's it's a very interesting uh, concept and i think you're absolutely right already we, should, we ought to talk about it a lot more uh and there, there are actually a lot of interesting projects in europe as well and um uh, I'm, I'm sure you've seen uh, other forms of storage too. You know, using sand as, as a medium rather than water, and there's, there's so much potential f- f- for for thermal storage. I, I, I believe it's it's certainly underplayed in, in 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 the discussion. I actually wanted to ask you, um, uh, so one final question from my side, really, and that is about the demand side. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about kind of what can supply district heat. Um, uh yeah, you know, where can we use district heating? What kinds of technologies can supply the heat that we actually use in the network? Um one one thing we looked at um a while back is that if you if you only look at district heating in isolation, you're actually missing a piece which is you know the, the buildings that are being supplied, if they were more efficient, they could use um, district heating at a lower temperature, which would make the district heating network uh, more efficient, would require maybe less upgrades uh, on the supply side. Is this something that you're looking at in 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 your work, um, or or is this kind of something that you leave to the energy efficiency buildings community, and you really focus on cleaning up district heating, or are you also looking sort of beyond beyond the meter? Yeah, you know, what's behind the meter? Um, is there something that you can you can do as well as an industry?
3: No you're you're totally right. Um, and, and of course we we look at it because indeed we we see for example, also the the uptake of a lower temperature uh, district heating which is more efficient but also uh, more sustainable. Uh, and it's also correlated with our capacity uh, to renovate um, to renovate our building stock today. And in general, again, resource efficiency. So we should have a stronger focus on reducing our demand in general. And just to loop in, uh, sorry, in the current repower power EU debate, I'm always amazed when the, the answer seems to be uh, very focused on technology, whereas um, in the very near term, the answer will be being more sober about the way we consume energy as well. Uh, and at large scale, so the problems here that we see and we know that there are very strong bottlenecks uh, to uh, the actual rollout of energy efficiency technologies in buildings, split incentives—you uh, know, building owners that just do not want to do it because they want to get back the profib- profitability from the rent, and they don't need to do it necessarily. It's it's very complex. I think here we may have to enter at some point a prescriptive, a more prescriptive approach, maybe also. At local level i don't know uh, and here as well you have the problem of the skills gap i think it's for energy efficiency it's very work intensive but that also means yeah when you want to renovate your place you need to be sure that you will have the the money and are those financial incentives enough accessible to people i mean i'm an energy person and you know Just I had to make kind of an extra effort renovating my house to go into the premium bonus malus systems and what am I allowed to access. So if even for me, it's not that easy, what would it be for someone that doesn't even know uh, so much about energy efficiency in buildings? I think for that, we haven't cracked the nut yet at European level. So indeed, we cannot put uh, or count on that only because we see the strong challenges there are on the ground and we see that we can also achieve much more efficiency uh, by rolling out district heating networks. So we also see when you when you talk about energy efficiency, try not to stick to the building level. Try to have a district approach to energy efficiency uh, instead. Uh, but yeah, I, I would support uh, any good idea also to to have those concrete uh, investments happening on the ground in the building stock. I think it's been 10 years. <laughs> that we have those targets and those schemes in place and uh, it just doesn't take up as much as it should
0: yeah absolutely uh ollie thank you so much just for a question then from me um what's then we've covered a whole range of topics in the in, in the last sort of hour or so what are the main points then that you think our listeners need to take away from this conversation what do we need to see within the heating sector uh what needs to happen now in order for it to one decarbonize and to really accelerate the energy transition across the energy space?
3: Well, for me, the first point would be heating matters and, uh, and it's a thing by its own. So there is hope and there is more the transition than only uh, solar and wind electricity, for example, and certainly more uh, than renewable hydrogen. Uh, so we need to be hopeful about that. We need to know that there are solutions like district heating and cooling that have very concrete, very concrete value proposition to support the decarbonization of our buildings. That's the first thing. The second thing is that um, we are missing a framework at European level. And we are missing the political attention that this sector deserves. And we should be aware of that. And we should ask our policymakers, whether it's at the local, national or European level, to do more about it. Um, Because it works. It's a technology that works. It is not a far-fetched technology that will maybe emerge in 10 years. It's being done today. And especially with the context of urgency that we have, I'm quite amazed that um, technologies, clean heating solutions in general, uh, small and large scale heat pumps, district heating and cooling systems, geothermal, solar thermal. I'm amazed of the, the, the small focus that we have on that today. Whereas we're talking about solutions that could actually deliver in the next five years, unlike the hydrogen bank, for example. So we need to mobilize uh, civil society around that. We need to to mobilize ourselves to develop a heating and cooling strategy that, that works. And, you know, it, it may be a strong word, but I think if we don't have that, I don't know if we're going, going to be able to decarbonize. That's just as simple as that.
0: Absolutely. Thanks, Rolly. Um, before we go then, um I'd like you to look into your crystal ball And uh, maybe tell us a little bit about what you see the energy landscape, I guess, within heating particularly. How does that look in 10 years to 20 years time?
3: So that's, uh, I also like a lot this question because I realized my vision had evolved a lot uh, since I started to work in in the energy sector. And uh, when I started, I, I was more on the electricity side. So in my mind, it was, you know, kind of a futuristic city with flying cars and everything electrified and those skyscrapers and digitalization everywhere. And then I, I, I spent more time and I, I started working in the heating sector. And I, I have put a bit of water in my wine in the sense that I see two types of infrastructures coexisting. I see on the one hand higher electrified society, that's for sure, smarter, more digitalized, um, but also being realistic on the fact that when you see the concrete bottlenecks you have on the ground uh, for the rollout of whatever, smart appliances, uh, new grid infrastructure, all these kind of things, this would have to be balanced by another type of system. And I'm talking a circular energy system, a local energy system, and that's where I see district heating and cooling solutions coming into the play. So, The future energy system for me must be diverse. That's one thing. And the second thing is it must be human. And by that, I mean, in my early days and this big technological thinking, that is also a bit the thinking that we have at European level, you know, technologies, high tech and stuff. It costs resources. So we should maybe shift a bit the focus rather than finding new stuff, resource incentive and shiny stuff, also in how we can more harvest what we have. And working in the district heating and cooling sector, I realized just how much we have at hand that we can use. So diverse and human would be uh, my answer.
0: Really interesting. Thank you, Arlie. Uh, before we go then, uh, let's go around the table and uh, discuss something that caught my eye in the last week or so. Uh, Jan, perhaps we could begin with you. What caught your eye this week?
1: I saw some research from, I think it was Keele University in the UK on solar farms and biodiversity because there's been a very lively debate recently with um, you know the, the Prime Minister of the UK saying that she does not want uh s- solar um panels to be erected on farms and on farmland um be- and, and partly uh for biodiversity reasons so this research kind of challenges that uh, really se- showing that uh, solar farms can can it you know, can be more biodiverse if they're built in the right way than just having farmland so i'm that, that's the one that i i was getting um, excited about
0: yeah really interesting we uh foresight did an article uh looking into how solar and, and agriculture can look side by side um in our previous print issue which ran out last summer um so do check that out um yeah really interesting topic about how they can live side by side and and uh, there's some really interesting work going on in that space already uh, in europe
2: well not only living side by side you get 100 percent more energy out of the same area yeah compared to bio if you do bio bio right. biomass
0: yeah. yeah absolutely really interesting um michaela how about you what caught your eye this week
2: Um, Michael Liebreich's speech in Rotterdam, uh, he does take no prisoners. So he went to this hydrogen hype event and then just told them that it's a hype. And and one sentence sticks with me in particular, which is we have to first sort the problems that grey hydrogen has. At the moment, it is a massive emission factor before we can start talking about hydrogen becoming a solution. And it struck me because it's true. Something that actually at the moment is a big source of emissions has become a solution hyped everywhere. And it's funny if you think about it this way. So, interesting talk.
0: It's a brave man to do that at such a such a conference. Um, Orly, how about you? What caught your eye this week?
3: Just to say, uh, Michaela, Mika- I, uh, I cannot agree more. And, and that's why also when I get questions about, uh, you know, the... the if the mix of district heating and cooling today should be a reason why we would not invest in district heating and cooling then i just remembered that uh hydrogen is today 99 fossil and i feel better <laughs> about the role we can play in the future uh and so what caught my eyes is corre- correlated to that uh actually it was simply the the leaks uh of the work package uh of the commission and um I was really hoping to see uh, some provisions on heating heating and cooling. I was uh, really hoping to see concrete proposals in this regard and and quite, quite very much uh, disappointed to see that, for example, there was a proposition to work on this hydrogen bank. uh, Whereas, uh, yeah, there was just nothing about clean heating solution. And uh, I really think it's a mistake uh and we are going to to work you know work on the hydrogen bank if you want i don't care but add into the program something about heating and cooling rollout uh because yeah we have solutions that are just awaiting to be developed
2: don't even work on the
3: hydrogen bank <laughs> yeah if you have to choose go for heating and cooling that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> absolutely
0: great thanks really uh just finally from me then um i uh What caught my eye last week was uh, a really interesting article about how Scotland has generated a record amount of renewable electricity in the second quarter of uh, 2022, um, which is really interesting to see. Obviously, helped by higher wind speeds and better uh, solar resource and and rainfall. But um, I think it's just going to show that at least there's a bit of my country uh, going in the right direction. And hopefully, I know there's been some noises uh, with the new administration that they might kind of loosen up a little bit on on onshore wind. Uh, within within England um so hopefully we can start seeing the rest of the UK going in a similar direction um, but we shall see they've spoken about it a few times already so uh watch this space but uh, yeah really interesting um my thanks to orally. uh that's all we have time for today my thanks to orally, Michaela Jan and our producer Anna thanks again to Anna for jumping in last week when I was off um if you have any thoughts or questions about anything we've said on today's podcast, you can reach us on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at DaveW underscore Foresight. Aurelie?
3: I'm on at Abbey
0: Jan? I'm on at Jan Rosenau. And Michaela?
3: At Citizen Sane 1.
0: If you have any questions for the team, you can also tweet the show at What Matters Pod or email us show at WhatMattersPodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.